0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies Editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future.
1: Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me, as usual, is David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well. I trust you're well uh, as we go into
2: spring. And I trust all our listeners all around the world uh, uh, are making the most of, uh, of what's going on every day and so much happening in electricity. Well,
1: there is. I'd just like to point out that we've actually been in spring officially for a month now, but I'm I'm glad you've caught up. We are in October. So, um, look, we have just completed the month of September. And um, as you predicted in a post on Renew Economy earlier on this week, um, it's been a month of records. You noted earlier it's a record share of output for wind and solar, the um, unreliables, as some in the government like to call them, or the intermittent, or just the variables, as you more politely call them, 23.5% in uh, September. I think that was confirmed when the month finally came to an end um, on Thursday, um, or on Wednesday night, sorry. And um, for the first time, the share of renewables, including hydro, is above 30%, and that's the first time. And I'd just also like to note that the share of wind and solar in South Australia um, as a percentage of local demand was 66%, which um, must be some sort of record as well, David. Um, Quite impressive, but um, there's more to come. Certainly,
2: Giles. So those numbers are good. And, you know, we need to be careful because this is the September quarter, and that is particularly uh, in September a strong month for wind generation, and that tends to push the share up because they get more solar. And uh, the obvious question to ask as a a financial markets analyst, well, if someone's winning and demand's not increasing, who is losing? And uh, so far through this particular year, the loser has been gas. Gas. Where the market share has dropped by about to what half of what it was for the same thirty days last year, and it's dropped markedly in South Australia, which is uh, pretty close to the biggest uh, gas state, and also in Queensland. Our coal generation share actually hasn't dropped much, and that's because the big coal generators are working more efficiently. They didn't last year; they had problems around this time, particularly in Victoria, but 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 uh, now they're working better. But the result of having less gas generation, the extra output, uh, so the pressure that total supply is putting on and the demand is actually down a little bit last year and the low coal prices, is that spot electricity prices have absolutely collapsed. And uh, for instance, over the last 30 days, the spot price in South Australia, which is a small market, was $14. So <laughs> wasn't that wonderful. You'd be glad you had a contract. Uh, mm. And and yes, just you going would. To add, be. Yeah, you would, <laughs> and and you know the futures price outlook is reflecting that. Uh, I think uh, uh, in a year, I can't remember it's twenty one or twenty two uh, uh, FY. I mean the Queensland price now starts with a futures based low starts with a three thirty nine dollars or something like that. And as you mentioned, Giles, there's plenty more to come. Uh, we were I was just adding up all the new supply uh, numbers, and sorry to talk for so long in this little burst, but uh, we we think there's seven gigawatts of totally committed supply. That is, assuming that, you know, the new contracts that have been announced in Queensland uh, actually do end up as contracts, irrespective of what happens in the election there. Um, seven gigawatts there, uh, and that's that's 21 terawatt hours of supply, which is more than, you know, any two coal generators you want to name. Uh, and, and then there's still going to be a lot more rooftop behind the meter stuff come. Conservatively, over the next five years, you'd be looking at somewhere between five and 10 gigawatts probably we've chosen seven and a half and that's more supply and that's all that's assuming that no new projects are announced and there's very clear signals there are going to be more projects even though they won't be able to get connected but because the new south wales government's doing this renewable energy zone and queensland's announced it's more v-ret so uh, on that side of things, it's it's all pretty positive. On the negative side, Giles, I think we're seeing quite a lot of change at the top in the organisation with uh, Audrey Zeebelman re, re, uh, retiring. Uh, you had a fantastic interview, if I might say so, uh, um, uh, with the Kerry Shot, the head of the Energy Security Board, and uh, uh, she was so forthright, you, you almost think she's not going to be there forever because... Uh, <laughs> um, and, 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 and so...
1: Well, that's right. Yes. Well, look, she's just been reappointed. So maybe she sort of feels like she can um, she can sort of say what she thinks. Look, I think Kerry Schott is a person that does usually say what she thinks. Um, but um, you're quite right. Look, it was a fascinating interview. Um, I think what I got most out of that now, the occasion was, and we'll get to Audrey's even, um shortly, but the occasion talking to Kerry Schott was a series of webinars that um, the ESB doing is to just try and fill everybody in uh, where, they're th- where they're at, where their thinking is in the redesign of the market rules. And this is a fundamental redesign as, as we've discussed previously David from a market system or a market rule base which is no longer considered fit for purpose simply because it's designed for um, a, a coal and gas grid which we had um, you know, 20, 30 years ago to, and, and, and that doesn't work with the new technologies which are coming into the market now because there's not the right incentives particularly for inertia and frequency control and system strength and you need to have better visibility and control and protocols for behind the meter stuff and have all the different things to encourage new technologies like demand response, electric vehicles and stuff like that, all the all the things that the federal government doesn't like to think about. But thank goodness, thank goodness, the energy bodies and the institutions are thinking that way. And I I think that's what I got most out of Kerry's shop because the question was mostly, okay, you're redesigning the rules. What's it going to look like? Is this going to actually accelerate and favour the new technologies? Or is this simply just going to be another barrier um, erected um, that will protect the incumbents? Because we've all heard about, you know, the problems with regulatory capture, and this was something that was actually discussed by Audrey Ziverman in another webinar we'll discuss um, later on. Um, You know, you had monopoly, basically, power, and you had monopoly knowledge over the markets and had monopoly control over the regulators. So it was really quite... It it was quite gladdening to hear um, Kerry of saying, "No, no, no, no. Um, We see uh, the step change uh, scenario. Yeah, the the Um, step change,
2: the step change scenario. It's not the businesses. It's not even the standard scenario. She says we're on the step change scenario. She says coal generators are going to close. uh, You know, for economic reasons. It's right in line uh, with with our thinking. You know, I'm sure Giles. And it was fantastic to hear her saying that in." in plain language you know and uh, you, you know, I, I she speaks extremely well is what i would say
1: absolutely and we would have loved to have gotten her onto the podcast and the invitation is still there for her to do so and um, she has expressed an interest in doing that later on in the year perhaps when the esb moves further forward with its market design and starts putting out their sort of their their um their, their initial drafts and that seeking feedback on that so we do look forward to that the other big news like of a, course a, a, was a a the couple, announcement. Couple of Sorry, just a couple of extra points on that, Giles. It's worthwhile
2: remembering that this is not the first time the electricity market has been redesigned, right? To start with, we had the original NEM that came in in about 1997 following the Hilmer reforms. That was a whole new world for everyone and caused a lot of pain for a lot of coal generators at that time. New South, Various New South Wales generators eventually had to had to, had to close. And before that, we had the original market technology-led thing when all these coal generators were first... Uh, developed back in the 1950s and we started moving away from town-based grids uh, up to big national grid and now it seems to me we're going to go in the other direction. So we, we, we've seen a lot of these technology shifts uh,
1: before or so I, th- I think. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. So um, yes, um, we've we've embraced them before and we can do so again. And that obviously has been the theme with the Australian Energy Market Operator and its integrated system plan. And it was um, quite startling um, to hear the news this week that Audrey Ziegman, the CEO, is um, resigning at the end of this year. And she's off to take a job with Google X, which the people from Google um, were hot onto the email to tell me that it's not actually Google X, it's just X. Um, they're obviously... I did suggest maybe they were maybe there were Prince fans, but they didn't seem to respond to that one. But anyway, um, but look, it's um, it's it, it, it sad to see um, Audrey Zieberman go. Not entirely surprising, given the pressure of the job, given that her, her family is still based in the US. But. Um, you Know there's been some criticisms recently about sort of connection issues in Victoria, in particularly, and, and some other things. But I just think overall, um, done a fantastic and important job changing the culture of the organization and also leading that program, um, to develop this sort of 20 year blueprint.
2: I think uh, Audrey has done a good job. I agree with you, Giles, uh, by and large. And I think the job was very challenging, and the scale of the challenge has only become apparent now. You know, it's all very well. Uh, me saying that you should have put the transmission foundations down first and 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 I think that is exactly right but that wasn't so obvious when we were all talking about the RET scheme and whether anyone had built any wind and solar and that was only like three or four years ago and and now of course we've got an absolute flood of it so so there's all that and just in uh, harking back to uh the work of the ESB the, the question I do ask myself is whether It's the right approach to evolve the system. You know, you can sort of think about it like a house to me, an old house. Are you better off renovating or tearing it down and building a a completely new one? Uh, i think in, inevitably i suppose we're going to go for the renovation approach uh, because there's so many issues you know that when which we can maybe talk about in detail if we get time for some of the details of what the amc is looking at now in terms of the ring f- fencing barriers between uh, networks and and the retail side of things and how you know that those barriers prevent community batteries getting going in a proper way and stuff but let's get back to audrey what what, what do you think uh what, what's she what's she what's she what, she had any final words for us
1: well, she hasn't had any final words, but she did actually give this fantastic um, um, presentation on, on a, the Smart Energy um, Council's uh, conference this week. And we're going to play an excerpt for that, or we're actually going to play her presentation. It's twelve minutes. Look, a lot of the things we kind of know already, but it was a really good summary of where we're at and where we need to go. Um, I remember when she was first appointed, I think she was just appointed shortly after the system black in, um, in South Australia and she came in and her first appearance, I remember being in South Australia at the time when they actually released their sort of their first assessment of what happened at the system black. And it was quite clear there that she wasn't being sort of, you know, sort of totally defensive, which is kind of what we're used to seeing from these institutional bodies and that there was like an open mind and, and some sort of clarity of thought. But um, anyway, Let's have a listen to what Audrey Zimmerman uh, presented at the Smart Energy Conference um, this week.
3: So, um, first of all, it's, it's wonderful to be a, at uh, this summit and, you know, listening to everybody. And I, as uh, the Australian energy market operator, we get to offer a slightly different perspective. And, and really for us, it's the perspective of actually how Australia in many ways is, is leading the transition and really what the hard work is ahead of us in order to decarbonize the power sector and, really, and support actually decarbonization of all sectors. So today I'm gonna really focus on the Australian experience as we're seeing it and what we're gonna add actually to this conversation. So um, just starting off with really a, a, the perspective from the someone who runs the power system. know one of the things about power systems is their complexity is actually increased by both their size and then the level of resources they're managing as well as the amount of people. So by all means, Australia is uh, probably one of the more complex systems to manage. We add 40,000 kilometers or 25,000 miles of transmission from Queensland down to to Southeast Australia and including Tasmania. We have one of the longest and skinniest grids um, with the least amount of interconnections and that makes it Exceedingly complex by comparison you know, with 10 million customers in the same size in the US when we think about going from Maine all the right down to the tip of Florida. It's about 146 million customers. So you have much more generation, much more transmission, many more interconnections, a lot more redundancy. And in many ways, not even as harsh a climate. So it's with that starting point that we are now sort of thinking about the transition and how we're going to manage it going forward. So in terms of that, the first thing that, that's really changed for me is the pace of change. I started out in the industry in 1988. And, you know, we used to talk about the energy industry as one of the slowest industries in the world, you know, decades, to make even a minor change. Well, here in Australia, we're seeing a massive transition, not just in terms of generation supply use, like, you know, going from coal to gas or something like that. But actually, a very significant change in technology mix where we're going from fossil technology that's uh, synchronized to the power system to renewable technology that's inverter based. In addition, we're going from technology that is uh, largely centralized to technology that is a, a huge mix of centralized and decentralized, meaning in particularly in terms of rooftop solar as well as, in fact, the size of the grid because what what we'll need to do as we think about moving into renewables is it's a much bigger system because of the landmass that's involved. So all of these things, but they're happening very quickly. So in our integrated system plan, what we've identified is that over the next 20 years, 63% of the coal fleet in, in Australia will retire just simply because of age. And as a result of the changed economics, of resources, we expect that those resources will be replaced by a combination of wind and solar and uh, firming resources, which will be themselves a combination of uh, storage and natural gas, depending on the price of both. And more importantly, a very significant increase in distributed solar, the fastest in the world. And And it's that change is happening so quickly um that that for us in australia we're finding that we're leading in many respects in how do you manage a power system with these changes in technology so the big story in australia that is around the the uptake of rooftop solar right now we have two and a half million systems Um, that was as of 2020 that's compared to 100,000 systems in 2010 we're essentially adding a generator almost every month or two months throughout the NEM. And right now, we uh, have 20% of our homes with rooftop solar, which is about one in three. The calculation we use, it's about a panel installed every six and a half minutes. And certainly, from a per capita basis, we're, we're world-leading in the amount of rooftop solar. And what for AEMO, what that means is it's really changing the face of demand and how we use energy. Uh, last two weeks ago, or last week in South Australia, we saw some of our lowest ever demand. And with 2,400 homes putting on rooftop solar in South Australia every month, we expect by next year, in 2021, in December, we'll have 36,000 more homes with rooftop solar. Which means there will be times of year, of the year, that we have actually no demand for power from the uh, from the grid. Which is a very challenging thing for us to think about how we manage and we have to really now start thinking about the changes so from a system operation standpoint. It's not a question of uh, policy, but it's actually a question of reality of, of how do we change this very, very quickly changing power system. So, you know, and I think the way to think about it always is to realize is that the power system itself is a very much a system of system so for us we think about it in in sort of a tiered approach one is how do you manage the physics of the power system because while we see this technology changing the physics of power systems don't change we need to make sure that the voltage is maintained the frequency is maintained it stays in balance and we have enough reserves to deal with many many different types of events so understanding that is something that's extremely significant from an engineering perspective. And we're doing that both internally with our resources domestically in working with our peers in the industry and internationally working with other global power system operators who are addressing the same things because there's no engineering book out there that tells you how do you manage a power system with more than 50% renewables. But for AEMA, we're looking at that by 2030 we could be managing a system that has 70% of the energy provided by renewable energy regularly. So those are major issues. The second is thinking about resiliency. As we were just reminded in California, certainly Australia had its experience last summer. There are extreme climatic events that have a very significant impact on the power system. So as we think about the power system going forward, We we need to recognize that we're going to see much higher temperatures than we've ever seen before, that those temperatures will affect the availability of resources. They'll also affect the demand for uh, for people for cooling and other types of things, and we'll have other major events such as hurricanes, and of course, bushfires that that, that have to be addressed, because the last thing we want is for people to feel vulnerable, that their power is off, when, when there's no, when there's a bushfire, but the other thing that uh, happens is as this, the entire economy becomes more and more electrified, the vulnerability increases. So understanding that and designing against this type of uh, a system that's resilient is going to be critical. The other is to recognize that our regulation and markets are not really designed for the type of power system we're managing. And so in Australia right now, we're undergoing a reform evaluation through the Energy Security Board that's really thinking through and saying, yes, the markets that were designed for the last uh, you know, iteration of the power system were designed around a central dis- uh, power system with a lots of dispatchable generation and where you're really optimizing fuel. Now that we're thinking about power systems where they're essentially free electrons coming from renewables, but it's inverter-based and it's highly distributed, how do we make sure that the regulation and markets are going to be set so that we can take the, make the investment in the most cost-effective way and reduce prices to consumers? So thinking through that is exactly what we're doing through the Energy Security Board. The other major piece is the integration of storage. The, the future of the power system, because we're gonna be depending on renewables and therefore weather as our biggest fuel source, means that we have to have the capability to store the energy. One of the major issues for EMO right now is thinking through what happens in the afternoon when we have lots and lots of excess solar, more than we can absorb, and how do we shift that to the times of day when we actually need it? And so thinking about how we use storage how do we get value out of both the investments that individuals are making and we're making on the grid is going to be important. And how do we also store the wind so that we can also use that when it's, when it's most available and we're not spilling these resources in a way that's uneconomical. The other piece is really thinking about industry coupling. You know, As we think about the inter- electrification of vehicles, it's gonna be really important to think about smart charging. You know, One of the best things we could do is to make sure that we think about our our incentives around charging of electric vehicles. Just during the times of day when we have a lot of excess solar. So how do we integrate in these policies so that we're thinking about how to use these assets better. Similarly with industry. It's going to be a lot of flexible use and then the development of hydrogen For Australia, we have a huge opportunity to create hydrogen hubs. Uh, made out of green energy and you actually using the electrolyzers as a way of storage and thinking about this in a very integrated way where hydrogen is both a fuel source it's an export source it's a source of green steel and it's a source of ba- balancing the power system the other piece that's that's really critical is recognizing that there's going to be an exponential growth of data just by sort of order of magnitude, and again, Australia is a fairly small market by, by international market standards, but we do 2 million forecasts a day of wind and solar availability. That's every four seconds because it's constantly changing and we need to keep the grid in balance. We're also thinking, knowing that in order to manage these systems, we need to be in a market environment. The market needs to settle much more frequency, so we're look, moving to a five-minute market. What that means for us is going from 90 million billion data reads a day, meter reads, to two trillion by 2025. So, if you think about that across markets like in Europe and in the US uh, and any other region which has much higher population, you can understand the need to actually manage this data, get the information about the availability of resources, and thinking about this as, as really data is one of the vehicles that's going to make these free electrons that much more efficient and the, and the last piece is cybersecurity. it's a it's a reality of our times and as we think more and more about a digital power system it's important that we think about how cyber protections need to be in place both on the critical infrastructure and in, as well as in the smaller parts of the grid just by order of magnitude last year um the the australian cybersecurity center reported that there are over 2000 um uh, cyber attempts in australia with 35% of it on critical infrastructure and again so we can't we can't guess at this and we need to be best in class at these things but the good things that the, these are all the things that are underway and again uh, and and for me our areas where australia is leading in thinking about how we're going to manage the system going forward so the point is, you know, I think, this is a, it's a very hopeful future. You know, historically, our, pow- our problem was in the power system, it was always around the, ha- the inefficiency, when we had super peaks, those hot days in the summer, where everyone's using their aircon and we, we have trouble managing the system and we put ourselves in a position where we say, well, the only way we can keep balance is to reduce demand involuntarily. Well, we've solved these problems with demand response, with customers being able to shift their load to use backup generation and things like that, and markets that support that. We now, of course, in Australia are dealing with not just that issue, but minimum demand. So we will have days where in the afternoon we don't have enough usage and in the evenings we have too much usage, in a way, exactly what happened in California just a few weeks ago. So the question is, how do we solve that? using storage and other resources so we can shift usage. Some of the work that's going on in South Australia today is really world-leading in, in learning how to shift demand in an aggregate way. But the, the goal, however, is, is where we can go, which is to say that now that we have a true two-sided system, one that we have both the ability to manage demand effectively and to manage supply, we can actually use move to a much more effective and productive system. And really start thinking about this as a way of increasing productivity on all sides of the meter, secured by good data, good information, and the ability, really, for the for the machine, to work that much more efficiently. So that's that is what essentially what we're working towards here. We have uh, in Western Australia what's called the roadmap for distributed energy resources. In the rest of the country, we're we're rapidly looking at creating this two-sided market. And I think that what we'll see in the next several years is that Australia is actually leading in the capabilities that are going to be required to manage a decarbonized power system. So um, again, appreciate the opportunity to be here. I always like to be on the side of saying, well, yes, there are big challenges, but we're working through them and we're doing it in the right way. So Thanks very much.
1: And that's Audrey Siegman, the CEO of the Australian Energy Market Operator, speaking at the Smart Energy Conference this week, and thanks very much to the people at the SEC for allowing us to um, replay that. David, um, look, a lot of that stuff we knew, um, but pretty straight up and down, but just really good to listen to again. I guess the key and one of the really important decisions to be made over the next couple of months is um, who's going to replace her?
2: Well, and we still don't have a new permanent uh, chair at the AMC either, so uh, there are... Uh, you know the um, triumvirate. Tri- a, tri- uh, a few empty uh, seats. There are a few empty seats in in, in the team, that are, and uh, it'll be important to see. I don't know that was much more we can say about that. Uh, other than to hope that they uh, appoint people who have the appropriate <laughs> qualifications, and uh, but by that I mean the 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 right level of uh, forward thinking, and, and uh, you know, AIMA did a good job appointing Audrey in the first place. I think that's that's pretty clear. Let's yeah. let's just not too much more we can say.
1: Well, no, I'd just like to sort of raise the issue about whether, I mean, some people sort of say, well, let's get a um, an engineer in there. Some people sort of say, let's get, I mean, do you want someone who's strictly an engineer sort of buried in the books or do you want someone who's able to lead the organisation and, um, you know, sort of um, complete the sort of the cultural shift, if you like? Um from one point of view to another. So it's going to be interesting to sort of see um, who they do um, get. So it's going to be quite fascinating. But look, David, um, I want to get back to the AMC because I'm quite fascinated by community batteries and things like that. We've talked about them in Western Australia who who are blessed with not having the AMC um, interfering in in, in, in their plans. But... um,
2: well, that's the we'll point, you on. know. What the what, what it comes back to uh, research, in a sense. When when I did a research year at university, there was a lot of talk about uh, normative and description research, and and normative research in a, in a way is like what the law does, in a sense, in in terms of the legal theory, and 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 it's what the AMC does is sort of st- works out what should be the case. Uh, that's the normative part. part. So what how, what's the best way to do it in theory? Whereas when you look at it from the descriptive point of view is what we see is when they didn't have any of these ring fencings and the whole electricity system was owned by the one organisation, the West Australian Government, when it's well run, it just gets on with things and gets it done. And so all of these uh, ring fencing barriers uh, disappear. And this means, as we know, there are a number of electricity assets that, uh, that provide externality benefits. So let's talk about grid forming inverters as another example. And uh, the 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 market redesign kind of uh, envisages that there might be a market for inertia, uh, but at the same time it it also starts to talk about um, uh, existing thermal generators in a day ahead kind of planning's approach. That because you you know if you're going to be needed for inertia, then you're going to have to turn on, and that has to be allowed for in 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 sort of the overall dispatch process. And so you need to plan out that all out a day ahead of time now. But if you had a whole lot of grid forming inverters uh, with batteries, then of course, they don't need much planning. They're just doing their job all the time. And this is where I come back to this, uh, if you could trust the uh, new developments in the technology enough, rather than going for this renovation approach, you might be able to go uh, for a new completely redesigned system when you think about the control and the transmission and connections first, and then the uh, sort of uh, physical assets like generation and storage that are gonna be needed uh, to, to make the whole thing work. And the key to it, it seems to me, is a lot around uh, grid-forming inverters, frankly, or virtual s- synchronous machines. I think they're going to be the answer to a lot of problems. And so, you know, we're going to have a lot more batteries as the five-minute market comes up. But, you know, community batteries are a clear case in point where um, uh, networks are, are probably the best people to install those batteries, uh, or at least they've got the skills, but people worry about them capturing their, their regulatory sort of... Uh, uh, um, uh, monopoly uh, rent, and so we can't get a system where uh, a, a retailer or some entrepreneur can install these community batteries, you know, and get the easements on every street. Should they go up telegraph poles as they're trying in Victoria? You can do small ones there, or do you need to have a separate area on the street to put to put it on, you know, like like a telephone box or something? Um, um, and and some of the benefit goes to the, goes to the network operator because they don't need to have as many substation expansions or or, uh, uh, voltage controllers that they otherwise might need. Uh, and uh, and they don't probably need as much control systems, but they might incur some extra expense in the extra communications technology and the maintenance, and, and a lot of the benefits then goes to the households. And the, the West Australian examples with community batteries are so incredibly encouraging, where the cost ultimate cost of storage to the households coming in at, or was coming in at half or less than half of what standalone batteries are doing, and so much less disruptive. So it just seems to me that uh, we need the uh, system to try and. Uh, the rules to adjust to, to to make these things more more possible. Another example is fast frequency markets, which the AMC is also considering. So as well as all these uh, big picture items that we're looking at about the share of renewable generation, uh, it's important to keep track of all these myriad of detailed rules and adjustments that are going on at the same time, including uh, things like five-minute settlement. So <laughs> it's a pretty complicated world as well- ever, Giles.
1: Well, it is and, and, and rapidly evolving and it needs to be because um if your predictions are right and we, um, well, they will be right because they're going to be, we're going to have at least seven gigawatts of um, new generation in and possibly more if they can land some contracts, then um, there's going to be a lot of coal, coal and other thermal generators exiting the market. Um, I'm just wondering, I'd just like to touch on a couple of other things that have been announced this week, and um, i just doing for many people um, fossil fuel projects. The Narrabri um, project in New South Wales, um, the Santos $3.8 billion gas project, has been approved by um, what's called the Independent Planning Commission, although some people suggest that it no, may no longer be independent. And then we've got news this week as well that the Palaszczuk government, in one of its last acts before going into caretaker mode, has basically given a sort of a royalty holiday to um Dhani for the development of the um, Carmichael coal um, mine in North Queensland in the Galilee Basin. First of all, David, um, you're a very experienced energy analyst. Um, Narrabri seems to have a defined cost of gas, which doesn't mean, doesn't translate into cheap gas. Why on earth would they go ahead and exploit it? (laughs) How does that work? (laughs)
2: Well, because it's, it's so the gas thing is complicated. I, um... You didn't ask me about the environmental side and I'll just point out that uh, I, as far as the uh, groundwater goes, I've never been able to see any good scientific evidence and I've read a, a lot of reports that that shows dem- demonstrable, consistent, systemic groundwater damage uh, uh, from, from coal seam gas. The carbon emissions, the fugitive emissions are, are a big problem. The groundwater, I'm not convinced, but let's put that to one side. Regarding economics, the, the, it's very difficult for everyone at the moment because the federal government has announced that it's going to support gas. Uh, that generally means uh, for these guys picking a winner and subsidising something or other. Uh, we don't know what they're going to subsidise. Are they going to subsidise a, a, a transmission link from West Australia to Eastern Australia? So all of these other projects like Narrabri, but also like Squadron Energy's gas import terminal at uh, Port Kembla and the much opposed Crib Point uh, potential terminal of AGL in Victoria are still unlikely to make a go ahead at the moment until they get some certainty about what, how much competition they face from the government so in, in a way, what the government is doing is actually negative for the development of uh, gas in, in the sense because it's, it's presenting itself as a low cost competitor without actually announcing exactly what it's going to do. So that, that's my concern on that level. In the end, though, it's, um, it, there are a lot of fixed costs uh, uh, associated with Narrabri. There hasn't been any drilling done, as to my knowledge, on the Narrabri field for four or five or six years. So I doubt that anyone uh, outside of Santos and probably even within Santos has actually has a good idea of what the costs are going to be, the capital costs. The other point to note is we saw from the oil industry, without wanting to be too dogmatic about it, is those costs are not fixed. Things, we saw when oil was $100, that big oil majors, $100 US, made about the same amount of money as they did when oil was $50. And that's because uh, uh, drilling costs go up and down with the oil price. And so it is, and labour rates do as well. And so this is all going to happen and play out in Narrabri uh and 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 so we i think the gas cost will be somewhere between five dollars and seven dollars aussie a gigajoule produced before any pipeline transmission and possibly towards the lower end of that scale but but i don't know i'm not definitive and then you can compare that with the cost of imported gas and probably fine and then you have to make a, (laughs) a guess about what the price of imported gas is going to be what i can say is that the Shale gas and shale oil industry in the United States has ended up as a total bust at the moment. Some people made some money early on, but right now there's a lot of banks and a lot of investors that wish they'd never heard of it. And I do see that the uh, long-term gas needs to be used for plastics, it needs to be used for fertiliser manufacturing, explosives, gas is used in process heating, things like brickworks and stuff. But the use of gas for electricity... I just don't see there's going to be that much gas used for that at all. We need gas generation for power for those times when there isn't any wind and solar, and we only need it for power until we get other uh, substitutes developed. But even if we use it for power, it's not going to be used for long periods of time, and that means the actual gas consumption uh, won't be all that high. So, So you're going to put a lot of infrastructure in place and not use it all that often for electricity generation.
1: Just very briefly, then, just to Danny, um, looks like they're getting free water. Um, they're going to get um, free coal, more or less, with a royalty holiday. Um, a lot of emissions. Um, just seems fairly frustrating and pointless to me, and a lot of other people. Um, but the uh, the latest, uh, the latest data. The well, latest, I think
2: I think the Palasz, Palaszczuk governments, uh, Palaszczuk governments, in a very tight contest in Queensland, and if you look at the betting odds, uh, Giles, they've moved against the government recently that uh, they were slightly odds on a while back and they're a they're, uh, second favourite now. Uh, <laughs> I don't believe opinion polls... That's
1: not good or... enough. That's, <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> that's right. Uh, I'm not a great fan of betting... Uh, you know, I've lost all confidence in opinion polls and betting odds over, over in elections and so I, I pay no, no real attention to them but I just observe the contest is very tight up there and Palaszczuk's approach has always been to support the left hand and the right hand equally. She's been happy to support uh, some sorts of coal, particularly uh, uh, metallurgical coal, and uh, just as happy to support renewable energy uh, and try and have, have it at both ways. Now, whether that's going to be enough or work out, uh, uh, I don't know, but I, 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 the only thing I would say is I hope the um, contracts that CleanCo has announced uh, uh, are going to be valid, or the, uh, uh, depending on who's in power. And uh, well, I guess that we also need to keep an eye on what the other side's policies are, uh, but I'm not optimistic if you're a clean energy fan.
1: No, I just had a look this afternoon, actually, and they're not very promising um, from the um, from the opposition energy minister, whose name I've already forgotten. Um, he's a member for Burley, I, I, I remember that much, but um, yes, no, 50% renewables is reckless, he says. And um, he's out to stop it. And um, so um, I think he wants to build a big dam somewhere. Anyway, look, I think that's probably about enough for now, Um, David. Look, it's been a fantastic conversation, Um, an interesting week. And look, every week gets um, pretty interesting. So thank you very much. Thank you also to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. Thanks to all the listeners out there um, for tuning in and giving us great feedback and response. And um, if you do want to leave a comment and a review, please do so possibly the best on the Apple platform if you use that particular one. Any final words, David?
2: Uh, no, Giles. Just uh, uh, encourage all our listeners to uh, keep thinking, keep being active, uh, uh, think global, act local, uh, just as fabulous as it ever was.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. I think that's all for now. See you next
0: week. Bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solar design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no lock-in contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant. Generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole, Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.